General George Armstrong Custer of the U.S. Cavalry pretended to be friendly to the Indians, but he never really listened to their pleas. The Sioux and the Cheyenne tribes came to view Custer as their bitter enemy. They ended up killing him at the Battle of Little Bighorn. And when the Indian squaws found Custer's body, they took a sharp awl and they pierced countless holes into his ears. They believed those holes would help him listen better in the afterworld. But this Indian myth reflects a biblical truth. For whether our ears are pierced or not, we will all hear better in the afterlife. In heaven, issues that we struggled to grasp, doctrines that dumbfounded us now, will be perfectly explained by God himself. And this is the truth we need to remember when we come to Romans chapters 9 through 11. The doctrines of predestination and free will are some thorny theology. They've been debated since the church was born. Their complete comprehension won't be obtained this side of heaven. And this is where a healthy realization of our own limitations, even a little humility, will go a long way. Well, Romans chapters 1 through 8 dealt with the principles in salvation. Chapters 12 through 16 will discuss the practicals of salvation. But in between the principles and the practicals, Romans 9 through 11 delves into a problem with salvation. Romans 9 through 11 answers the question, now that salvation by grace through faith in Jesus has come to the Gentiles, what then is God's attitude toward the Jews? Now granted, Romans 9 is some pretty heady stuff. It features some of Paul's most cerebral arguments. And that's why it's interesting that he begins by revealing his heart. Verse 1, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Paul is brokenhearted over the lostness of Israel. Now, unless you have immediate family who don't know Jesus, it's difficult to grasp the depth of this grief. I mean, the heart aches when your eternal destiny differs from the people you love. Paul is about to say some hard things to these Jews, and he first wants them to know how much he loves them. The thought of his Jewish kin burning in hell grieves him deeply. In fact, he makes a mind-boggling statement in verse 3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. The word accursed means anathema. It means to deliver a soul to eternal damnation. And here Paul is saying that he would be willing to go to hell if the Jews can go to heaven. Isn't that amazing? Think of the Secret Service agent who puts his life on the line to protect the president. He takes a bullet for the commander-in-chief, but that's nothing compared to Paul's sacrifice here. He's willing to forego not just earthly life, but eternal life to save the Jews. Once there were two men, they were discussing their respective churches. The first man, he said, you guys just have a new pastor, don't you? Why did you fire the old one? 
Well, his buddy replied, he said, well, he spoke too much about hell. The first fellow asked again, he says, well, what about the new pastor? What subject does he speak on? His buddy said, well, he speaks on hell too. Well, the fellow was confused. What's the difference if both men speak on hell? His friend explained, well, when the old pastor told folks they were going to hell, it sounded like he was glad. But when the new pastor tells them, it sounds like it's breaking his heart. And this was Paul. It broke his heart to think of his Hebrew kin going to hell. He would be willing to go to hell if it meant the Jews could go to heaven. And you know, if Paul was willing to go to hell for lost people, we got to think, why aren't we willing to walk next door to share our faith or to love on a coworker or to invite a neighbor to church? Why aren't we willing? Realize in the next 30 seconds, 39 people will die from this earth. Every hour, 5,000 people leave this world to meet their maker. And most of them step out into a Christless eternity. This realization should stir up our concern. Well, Paul's passion for the Jews was enhanced by their many privileges. He writes in verse 4, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Here Paul lists some of the blessings that God had given to the Jews, the greatest of which, of course, was Jesus. For Jesus was born a Jew. You know, there's an old saying, you don't get to pick your, your relatives. That is, unless you're God. And of all the nations, God chose the Jews. They were his partner in salvation. And yet, tragically, John 1 verse 11 tells us, Jesus came to his own, the Jews, and his own did not receive him. For 2,000 years, the Jews occupied a special place in God's plan. And that's why Paul's readers were so puzzled as to why they weren't saved. You know, I would have answered that the Jews had a choice, and they chose to reject Jesus. But Paul surprises us with a different rationale. He says that what happened to the Jews was the result of God's choice. Verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And here's Paul's first point. The Jews trusted in their bloodline, in their pedigree to save them. But that wasn't enough. It's never enough. For a real relationship with God isn't the result of your bloodline, but of grace. You see, in God's estimation, not everyone with Hebrew blood or DNA is a true Jew, or that is, a true child of God. He says in verse 7, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. 
You remember Abraham, the father of the Jews, he had two sons. Biologically, Ishmael was his firstborn. But spiritually speaking, God never recognized Ishmael. For in Genesis 22, verse 2, God told Abraham, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac. Notice God called Isaac Abraham's only son. God's people were never just about their bloodline. Pedigree alone didn't save them. And this shocked the Jews. They figured that since they were the heirs of Abraham, they were automatically accepted by God, but not so. The other trait the Hebrews trusted in was their behavior. To a Jew, salvation was something due. It was a paycheck you earned by doing good deeds. And this is the error that Paul tackles now in verse 10. He says, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Rebecca, she had twin boys. Jacob and Esau. And before either of them had done a thing, before they had attended church or given an offering or fed a poor person, before they did their first good deed, God chose Jacob over Esau. Later in life, Jacob swindled Esau. I mean, Jacob was more diabolical than Esau. Yet God still chose Jacob. Paul's point is it had nothing to do with their performance. It was predetermined. The boy's place in God's family was a matter of election or God's choice. And here he quotes Malachi 1 verses 2 and 3 to prove it. As it is written, he says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, God didn't literally hate Esau. The figure of speech here is called hyperbole or exaggeration. God loved both boys. We know that from other scriptures. But his loving plans for Jacob made his plans for Esau look like hate. God chose Jacob over Esau. And here's Paul's big point. Prior to either child sliding down the birth canal, or before they lifted a hand to prove or disprove their worthiness, God elected Jacob and rejected Esau. God's choices are based on neither bloodline or behavior. And here's where it gets even stickier. Ultimately, neither are God's choices based on belief. God chose Jacob over Esau in utero. In other words, before the boys were born, before either could work or even have faith. As Paul says in verse 11, it was done that the purpose of God according to election might stand. In a sense, it's God's choice, not man's choice, that decides our eternal destiny. God saves whom he chooses and he condemns whom he chooses. And after hearing that... You'll relate to the reaction suggested in verse 14. For Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? 
I mean, this doesn't seem fair. We should be the captain of our own fate. Is God some kind of tyrant? And Paul's answer to that is certainly not. Now, we Americans value equal opportunity, don't we? Everyone should have the freedom to make their own choices. And we get this concept from the Bible. One of the ways man was made in God's image was to be endowed with the authority to choose his own destiny. The theologians refer to man as a free moral agent. But think this thing through. We're quick to defend our right to choose, but what about God's right to choose? Doesn't God get a choice? Isn't salvation His to give? Why shouldn't He have the freedom to give His salvation to whomever He pleases? He's God, not us. Verse 15 stresses this point further. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. In short, it's up to God to allocate mercy as he sees fit. I'm afraid that because God made salvation so simple and accessible, we have assumed that it's our right. We forget that after 6,000 years of sordid, sorry, sinful history, God would be perfectly just in throwing us all into hell and starting over. I mean, to me, it's not as much a surprise that God hated Esau as it is that he loved Jacob. It's astonishing to me that God loves any of us for that matter. You know, I once worked for a boss who on occasion allowed us to leave an hour early on Friday afternoon, and yet he'd pay us for the whole day. But you know, after a while, we started expecting to leave early every Friday. And when we had to work the full day, we would complain, this isn't fair. He's mistreating us. See, we lost our gratitude for the boss's benevolence. We misinterpreted his mercy as our right. Don't say it's not fair for God to save some folks and not save others. God doesn't owe salvation to anyone. We all deserve the flames of hell. The only reason any of us are forgiven is because God chooses to give us a gift that we don't deserve. Oh, we're all glad that God has given us a choice. So why do we begrudge him his? Verse 17 tells us, For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. The Pharaoh of the Exodus was an example of a man God rejected. God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to bring him down and demonstrate God's power over Egypt. Notice verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? And Paul anticipates the logical question. How is it fair for God to harden a man's heart and then hold him accountable for his hardness? We gain insight into this by going back to the Old Testament passage that's referenced here. 
Exodus chapter 8 verse 32 tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. You see, God's sovereignty wasn't overriding Pharaoh's compliant and obedient heart. No, God stiffened a heart already committed to stubbornness. And this is the argument that I would have emphasized had I offered, authored Romans. I would have balanced out God's election with man's responsibility. Oh yes, God hardens hearts, but only after a person hardens their own heart. That's what I would have written. But that isn't the argument that Paul musters here. In fact, he keeps beating the drum and he doubles down on God's election and God's choosing. Verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Hey, the clay has no say. The clay has no authority to tell the potter what he can and can't do. The potter has complete mastery over the clay. Paul writes, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now notice here, Paul isn't speaking dogmatically. He's using a what-if argument. Paul isn't saying that this is how it actually works. He's speaking hypothetically. What if God created the world's lost Gentiles as whipping boys? That they were created for the sole purpose of God showing off his wrath by sending people to hell. What if? And then he chose the Jews for the sole purpose of revealing his mercy by transporting them to heaven. As Paul puts it, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and vessels of mercy prepared for glory. Now, Paul doesn't say this is what God did, but what if? God can do what God wants to do for no other reason than God can do it. Guys, he's God. And who is mortal man to question God? What if God took you, a lump of clay, and turned you into an elegant piece of china that would be cherished for generations? Or what if he took you, a lump of clay, and made you a target for skeet shooting for the sole purpose of getting blown to smithereens just for the fun of it? Either way, it's up to God. We're just the clay. We have no right to question the purposes of our Creator. Hey, some of us are afraid to let God be God. My favorite scene from the movie Rudy, I love the movie Rudy, but my favorite scene scene is where he wonders if he's prayed enough to get into Notre Dame. Well, the old priest comes to him and he has some wise words. Here they are. Can you help me? Son, in 35 years of religious studies, 
I've come up with only two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I'm not him. <laughs> Did you get that? There is a God, and I am not him. God does as he pleases, friends. God answers to no one. And you can't fully appreciate God's salvation until you first have acknowledged God's ultimate sovereignty. And granted, such dominance would be scary for a lump of clay if it were not for the potter's hands. But when it comes to our potter, we see in his hands the scars of sacrifice. The fact that Jesus was willing to die for us proves that he loves us and that we can trust his hands to mold us in ways that are good and loving and holy. So what does the Bible actually teach? God's election, his predestination, that my eternal destiny is decided by God before I'm born? Or does it teach man's free will, that every human has the responsibility to accept or to reject Jesus? Well, I believe the Bible teaches both. It teaches both the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. That God chose me, but it's also up to me to choose God. In Romans 9, Paul pounds away at this issue of election. But in the very next chapter, Romans 10 verse 13, he writes, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That implies the choice is ours. The reason I believe both seemingly contradictory doctrines is because the Bible teaches them both. And it makes no attempt at reconciling the mystery. It's like holding up a quarter and asking you to describe what you see. Oh, I see George Washington's head. But that's not what I see. I see an eagle with his wings spread out. And though the descriptions seem irreconcilable, the truth is we're looking at the same object, just from different angles. And this is the case with God's salvation. God commands us to choose. From our perspective, it's all up to us. But once we're chosen, we realize before the world began, God chose us. It was all about Him all along. Once there was a wise man, he commented on this doctrine of election. He said, Long ago, I settled this issue. If God didn't choose me before I was born, I'm sure he would have seen nothing in me to choose afterwards. Someone suggested that when we enter into heaven, the front of the gate will be engraved, whosoever will may come. But after we've entered the gate, we'll look around and we'll see on the backside, it says chosen before the foundation of the world. I'll never forget coming home from work one day and finding a jar in the floor of the kitchen with a lid lying nearby. The label read, warning, biological material, teratogenic and mutagenic agents present. And I panicked. I started screaming for Kathy running around the house. I thought, oh my word, the boys have been out in the woods and they've brought in a poisonous canister into the house. We're all contaminated. But Kathy calmed my fears. The jar with the ominous label turned out to be the thermos that went with Nick's Jurassic Park lunchbox. <laughs> the point is, things are not always as they seem. 
Picture two ropes hanging from the ceiling above us. One goes up, the other goes down. The arrangement looks unrelated. In fact, it looks like it contradicts each other. Both ropes look to be moving in opposite directions. But what if we then popped a few ceiling tiles and we discovered that the two ropes were actually one rope strung over a pulley above the tiles? You see, I think this is what we're going to find when we get to heaven. We assume that free will and God's sovereignty are at odds, and yet in reality they work together. There's no contradiction here, just a higher logic at work. What God says in Isaiah 55 verse 9 is true. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. Here's another provocative quote. Try to explain the doctrine of election and you'll lose your mind, but try to explain it away and you may lose your soul. That the Bible puts two seemingly contradictory doctrines at the very center of our salvation reminds haughty humans that God knows more than we do. And our first step to Him is humility. You've heard the expression, inquiring minds want to know. But at some point in our learning, inquiring minds need to bow. Our salvation is all about God. The question Paul's readers had asked was about the apparent change in status of the Jews. They'd always been the heirs of salvation, but now they weren't the folks getting saved. It was the Gentiles who were coming to Christ. And as a result, some people were accusing God of being an Indian giver. You know, if God promised salvation to the Jews and they weren't saved, then how could Gentiles now be confident of God's promise? And to answer the question, Paul brings up a few Old Testament passages predicting this flip-flop, that salvation to the Gentiles and judgment on the Jews would eventually happen. He begins with Isaiah 2, verse 23. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. You recall Hosea's bizarre story. God told the prophet to marry a prostitute. His marriage symbolized God's relationship with Israel. The Jews had been spiritually promiscuous. They had followed after idols. And Hosea's marriage mimicked their relationship with God. In fact, Hosea named his third child, Lo-Ami, or Not My People, prophetic of the fact that God would withdraw Israel's favored nation status. In essence, the Hebrew nation was placed on suspension, and God signed a new player to fill the roster spot, the Gentiles. For he says, I will call them my people who were not my people. God would adopt the Gentiles. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And this was important. When God included the Gentiles into his family, that didn't mean that he was through with the Jews. I mean, no way. No way, Jose. Uh. <laughs> For one day, the Jews in Israel will embrace Jesus as their Messiah in the same place they rejected him. Verse 27 says, 
Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. And here Paul quotes Isaiah 10, verses 22 and 23. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. I believe this short work is the seven years known as Great Tribulation. And in the end times, we learn elsewhere that God will pour out plagues on this earth for two reasons, remember, to punish the wicked, but also to purify the Jews. Isaiah calls the Jewish survivors of the tribulation the remnant, and they are the Jews who Paul says will one day be saved. And as Isaiah said before, here he quotes Isaiah 1 verse 9 and 13 verse 19, Unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. See, God refused to wipe out Israel as he completely wiped out the city of Sodom. He judged, them, he judged Israel for a season, but in the end, all Israel will be saved. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. I mean, what an irony this was. Think of a football game. The quarterback throws a pass that bounces off the hands of its intended receiver, and it gets caught by a defender who then takes it in for the winning score. You remember that awful moment. Well, this is our story. The Jews were the targeted receivers, but when they reached for the ball, it bounced to the Gentiles. In the right place at the right time, the Gentiles caught the carom for no other reason than grace and were saved. Yet if God is a perfect passer, why didn't the Jews make the catch, you might ask? And he answers in verse 32. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith but as it were, by the works of the law. The Jews tried to earn what could only be received by faith. Gentiles had nothing of merit, and they knew it. They knew they were undeserving, but they had faith. See, the Jews missed salvation because they wanted to buy it with their own goodness and good works and earn it. Chapter 9 ends, For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, and now Paul quotes Psalm 118, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Psalm 118 predicted the Jews would stumble over their Messiah. Rather than see Jesus as the way, they saw him as in the way. He didn't fit their messianic stereotypes. He was a rock in their shoe rather than the rock on which they leaned. And thus, they refused to believe. They refused to have faith. And so chapter 10 begins, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Understand, at the time, the Jewish people were the most religious people on the planet. And yet Paul, one of their own, here declares that the Jews weren't even saved. Think about that. This would be like me standing up and saying, the Pope isn't saved. 
I've been to the Vatican in Rome. It is a bastion of religion. Round the clock, liturgies are read. Prayers are said. Candles and incense burn like a forest fire. I mean, whether the Pope is actually saved is between him and God. I don't know. But the point here is that religion alone doesn't equal salvation. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Even today, Jerusalem is the only city on earth where riots erupt on the streets for violations of a holy day. You can walk into an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood dressed immodestly, and the residents will want to stone you. They're full of zeal. The problem with the Jews wasn't a lack of zeal, but a lack of knowledge. Paul says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, they want to please God, but they go about it the wrong way. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. To get to God's heaven, you've got to follow God's directions. And the path to heaven is not manufacturing a self-righteousness, but it's in receiving a God-given righteousness. He says in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. You know, the law required a flawless routine. One slip up and you're guilty of breaking the whole law. Here's the problem with living under the law of Moses. You can keep all of the commandments some of the time, or you can keep some of the commandments all of the time, but no one is able to keep all of the commandments all of the time. You're going to slip up. You're going to break them, and you'll be guilty of it all. You recall the old Smith Barney ads? John Houseman had a famous line, and you've got to hear it from him. He says it's so much better than I can. Here it is. They make money the old-fashioned way. They earn it. We make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. That's how the Jews felt about righteousness. We're right with God because we earn it. Notice verse 6. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Notice, Notice faith is different. You don't earn it when you come to God by faith. He says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. You know, Americans believe that hard work and determination are omnipotent. And they may get you places on earth. But trust me, they're not going to get you anywhere with God. You can't coax God down from heaven with your good deeds, Paul says. Nor can you conjure him up with your mystical and religious practices. You've met supposedly spiritual folks who wear crystals and chant their mantras and they're sending out all sorts of metaphysical feelers looking for God. Well, Paul is saying you can't connect with God that way. Connecting with God isn't the result of earning divine favor or learning some kind of divine formula. No, God has made it much simpler. Verse 8. But what does it say? And here he quotes Deuteronomy 30. The word is near your mouth, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Here's how faith works. 
God is as near to you as the tip of your tongue. Salvation is not an award you aspire to, nor a secret you acquire. It's a gift you simply desire. It's at the tip of your tongue. You just have to ask for it. And you have to believe that when you do, God will grant you your request. That's how faith works. He says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Again, salvation isn't flexing my muscles or straining my brain. It's confessing with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he's won the victory over death. And when I do that, God grants me salvation. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Real faith starts in the heart, but it comes out of the mouth. Faith includes an inner pledge and an outer witness. Verse 11 reads, For the Scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. In other words, everyone gets saved the exact same way, Jew and Gentile. Verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And here's my question. Have you called on the name of the Lord? I hope so. The emphasis in chapter 9 was God's sovereignty. Salvation is up to him. But now in chapter 10, it's all up to me. Note here, in back-to-back chapters, the Bible teaches both perspectives. You know, someone might come to Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain while I'm in Romans chapter 9, and they think, wow, this guy preaches predestination. And they would be right. But then they come back the next week, and they hear me teach Romans chapter 10. And they might think, wow, he adheres to man's free will. And they would also be right. And they would think, wow, did this guy change his whole theology in one week? No. The Bible teaches both God's election and human responsibility. And it doesn't try to reconcile the two. God asked me to believe these two truths, not to reconcile them. God chooses and we have a choice. How they work together, I don't know. But I trust that they do. And it's amazing how these two doctrines, though irreconcilable in theory, work out in practice. Let someone complain. This isn't fair. God didn't choose me. Well, I would reply, how do you know? He'll say, well, I'm not a Christian. And I'll respond, well, why aren't you a Christian? The Bible says, whosoever will may come. He'll likely fire back. Well, I'm not sure I want to come. And my reply, well, maybe you're not chosen. But don't blame God for it. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 tells us, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Don't blame your unwillingness on God. Henry Ward Beecher used to say, The elect are the whosoever will, and the non-elect are the whosoever won't. I believe God revealed to us the doctrine of election to provide us a comfort not a cop-out. Well, the first half of Romans chapter 10 spoke of the simplicity of salvation. 
The second half now speaks of the seriousness of evangelism. God made salvation simple, attainable, even available. But it's now our job to spread the news. And Paul encourages us to be witnesses with a string of rhetorical questions here. Verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? People can't believe and receive until they've been told. This is why just living your Christianity is not enough, friends. God doesn't sanction silent witnesses. Eventually, you have to speak up and you have to explain your faith to folks. It's been said, too many Christians are like the Arctic River, frozen over at the mouth. Don't let that be you. You remember Romans chapter 2 taught us that we'll be judged by the light we receive. That being true, you may think, well, why take the gospel to the pygmy over in Africa and risk his rejection? If he's not accountable for what he doesn't know, just don't tell him. Ignorance is bliss. But here's the problem with that thinking. For nobody lives up to the truth they've been shown. Has that pygmy in Africa ever violated his own conscience and done an evil deed? I say yes. And because of it, he needs to be saved. Thus, he needs the gospel because it is God's only plan of salvation. See, even if God were willing to save a repentant, trusting pagan, how many repentant pagans do you know? Not many. Not any. When that pygmy invites you for dinner, trust me, he's not being nice. You're on the menu. Ignorance is not bliss. We all need salvation, and it's only available in Jesus Christ. That's why we need to get out and tell folks. He says in verse 15, For as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. You know, all husbands admire their wives, and Jesus is no exception here. The bridegroom adores his bride, the church. Did you know Jesus thinks we're beautiful? But what grabs his attention isn't our hair or our figure or our face. It's our feet. It's the feet that carry the gospel. That's what Jesus says is beautiful. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. How do you build up a strong faith? It's by taking heed to God's word. The Bible is the faith builder. You know, D.L. Moody said he spent years praying to God for stronger faith, but to no avail. One day he recalled chapter 10, verse 17. Moody said he got up from his knees, opened his Bible, and his faith had been growing ever since. Verse 18, but I say... Have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. See, God's plan all along was to bless the Gentiles in Christ so that it would make the Jews jealous and they would turn back to him. 
But Isaiah, he quotes Isaiah 65, is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. In other words, it was the Gentiles who caught the ball off the carom and were saved as a result. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The Jews had rejected God, but it was despite God's constant pleadings. God called to them, but they turned their back on him. And so, is God through with the Jews? Well, he'll answer that question in chapter 11. So you'll have to come back next week. And there we have Romans chapters 9 and 10.